That's Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 through 19. <clears throat> Ephesians four seventeen through 19. <clears throat> this also is God's holy word. We'll read from verse 17 through verse 24. <clears throat> now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. <clears throat> but that is not the way you learn Christ. <clears throat> Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. May we go to our God and ask for his blessings on the reading and also the preaching of his holy word. <clears throat> Our loving Father, we thank you for the warnings that you have given us in your word. We thank you, Father, for the privilege that we have to worship you. And Father, we pray that you would help us to examine our own walk. That should be a new walk, a new walk according to the ways of Christ. But Father, we realize that there's so much that we don't know. The things that we once gave up, we thought that was it. But even... Each day, you reveal to us ways in which we must die to our old selves and that we must live unto Christ, that we have a, a duty to change, a duty to grow. Father, we pray that you would help us not to become complacent, that none of us would think that we have arrived. Father, we acknowledge that your perfection is so far above our standards. Father, help us to think your thoughts, for your thoughts are far higher than our thoughts. Father, we pray in thanks that you freely offer us the forgiveness of sins in your Son, Jesus Christ, that he alone is our hope of glory. And Father, we pray if any are here who do not know you, who have not committed their lives to you, Father, we pray that you indeed would do a mighty work, that you would give new life, that you would transform hearts and lives. Father, we pray that your Son, Jesus Christ, would be exalted and that your servant would be humbled. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> Perhaps you've met some people who had some type of traumatic brain injury, uh, a stroke of something of that sort, and there is the need to learn to walk again. And I don't know about you, but some of those simple things we take for granted are quite complicated. That is children. You think about learning a language. Children learn it so well. It's much harder for adults. You, you compare uh, an, an infant to a five-year-old, a 13-year-old to a 50-year-old trying to learn a new language or learning to walk again. It becomes much more difficult as we get older. And here you think about how difficult it would be to learn how to walk, put one foot in front of the other. Uh, and you think about the mechanics of what we must do to walk, transfer of weight, uh, lifting one foot, setting it down. Then you think also about how spiritually your new life in Jesus Christ, you also must learn a new walk. That the walk that we've had 
as Gentiles, formerly in the world, in our element, that our lives must be completely transformed, that Jesus calls us to new life, that he doesn't save us so that we may continue in the, the life of sin. He saves us from that life of sin so that we might walk in newness of life, that we might walk uh, according to his marvelous light. And that this is something you and I should desire to do, that we should be willing to give up the old ways. <clears throat> in the book of Ephesians, we have the Apostle Paul's presentation of our glorious Savior in Jesus Christ. He speaks about how uh, oftentimes he mentions this leaving the life, the previous life. He, thinks, he speaks about how Jesus has bought us by his blood, that our lives are no longer the same. They must not be the same. And in the first half of the book, chapters 1 through 3, he gives us what are called the indicatives. This is what the Lord has done for you. What God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit did on behalf of sinners. And then in Ephesians 4 through 6, the second half of the book, uh, chapter 4, we have that transition. We see this transition often in Paul's writings or in, in letters of the New Testament that you have the theory and then you have the practice. You have the indicatives and then you have the imperatives. And here we have very simple imperatives that we must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Then he describes their walk. And it's a reminder to you and to me, this is how we once lived. We must not continue in that. So perhaps this section <clears throat> answers that question. The claim, Lord, save me. And the question is, save you from what? And we have that in verses 17 through 19. This is what the Lord saves us from. He saves us from ourselves. He saves us from our darkness. He saves us from the ways of this world. He saves us from the very grip of Satan. So the truth that we see, the Lord saves you from your former life of corrupt thinking, hardened hearts, and unrestrained sensuality unto impurity. Lord saves you from your former life of corrupt thinking, hardened hearts, and unrestrained sensuality unto impurity. We'll look at this in two points. The first, the command to a clean break from your past life. <clears throat> and second, the reasons for a clean break from your past life. So the first point in the first half of verse 17, the command to a clean break from your past life. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. And we have to think for a moment of the context that the book of Ephesians, conveniently, we find that the apostle Paul was in Ephesus in Acts 19, Acts 19, Acts 20. And we have a bit of an idea of what this city was like. That the description about them was that some Christians there began to give up their magic. And we're not talking pulling a rabbit out of a hat. This was, this was magic meaning sorcery, right? This was demonic. This was the burning of expensive spell books that those who practiced magic collected their books and they realized, you know what? We can't hop on eBay, right? Or we can't hop on Amazon Marketplace and sell these spell books, right? They have to be burned. But then there's so much money involved, but they say, no, 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 these must be burned. Then you have the temple of Artemis. 
Artemis or Diana, that this was uh, one of Ephesus's claims to fame, is that they were a center for idolatry. And if you look at any of these centers, like Corinth, what was they had was it Aphrodite and Apollo, but that anywhere you have these cities with the temples of idols, there will be fornication and all kinds of evil practices. That we ought to understand that these were first century Christians. These were the ones who left behind that life. That this, this wasn't ten generations later, this was the first generation. The implications of new life in Christ is the need to give up old ways, old habits, old practices, old ways of thinking. Here we also have the context of the letter. <clears throat> Earlier Paul mentioned about mature manhood, no longer children, and that recognizing that maturity requires a separation from past ways. And perhaps <clears throat> you wonder why the Apostle Paul keeps on taking us on this stroll down memory lane. He, he often goes back to, this is who you were. This is, this is what the Lord called you from. Chapter 2, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And perhaps you're thinking, hey, well, why does he keep on bringing up our past? Enough of it. Can, can he just shut up about it? Well, this is, an, this is divinely inspired word. Right? It wasn't just Paul's ideas. This was every, every word that's there is by, by the will of the Holy Spirit. There's a need to remind us of what we once left behind because there is a need to leave it behind. Instead, we have in Ephesians 4, walk in a manner worthy of your calling, meaning no longer walking in the manner of the Gentiles. Ephesians 4, 14, no longer tossed to and fro by the waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine. Here we have in verse 17, now this I say and testify in the Lord. <clears throat> Other versions, uh, and now this I say and affirm together with the Lord. So here, the Apostle Paul is saying that you must do this. But he's calling, he's calling upon the Lord Jesus as, as his witness, that he also support this. The, the Lord Jesus is the one who commands you then, not the Apostle Paul. <clears throat> you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. And here, we ought to understand the use of Gentile is not a contrast to being a Jew. He's not saying that you must cease eating pork or shellfish or, or any of the pleasant things in life. He's not telling you to become a Jew. He's talking about Gentiles. Keep in mind the word for Gentile and the word for nations are the same. So he's saying no longer be like those of the world. Uh, in other words, don't, be, don't live the life of an unbeliever anymore. Now that you are believers in Christ. That on, not only your faith, but your life ought to be transformed. And this no longer walk as Gentiles do consists of two components. This negative command of no longer do this consists of two things. It consists of laying aside your former manner of life. 
Don't do what you once did. And the second part of it is no longer imitate your present evil environment, that is, the world. <clears throat> so the first part of it, lay aside your former manner of life. Ephesians 2, sorry, Ephesians 4.22 describes this. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires. Meaning that we have certain desires, and the way that the darkened mind works is you have this desire, and then it, it goes, it feeds back to, to the mind, where the mind starts to play these games of, of reasoning and trickery, right? So it justifies those desires. So here we have feelings and desires, and then the mind goes to justify them. The, the Christian way is the other way around, that we, we should have right thoughts, and they should govern our desires, and it should hold back our desires, especially those sinful ones. So some habits, some practices, some ways of thinking. When we first became believers, we realized that there was an immediate cutting off. Some of those things were so clear, we cannot continue in those anymore. Yet, those obvious ones, those obvious ones, they, they're right for us to leave them behind, but as you continue to grow in Jesus Christ, you realize that the tricks of Satan start to become more subtle. I think back to uh, a boss of mine was telling me that one of his morning routines, he has, he has these fruit trees in his backyard, that he, he plants these traps because he said during the, uh, the growing season, rats will come and they'll, they'll eat his grapefruit and his other, uh, other precious fruit. And he sets these traps and he, he says, I need, to, I need to throw away those traps with the, the dead rodents because they freak out my wife. So, so then he, he talked about how over time he would throw these dead rodents out, but he said, there's still fruit that are damaged. There's still fruit that are eaten. And his conclusion was, okay, we're only getting the dumb ones, right? So, so the smarter ones are saying, hey, we saw Bob there. He was stuck in that trap. He didn't do so well, and you know he never writes anymore, so he's gone. And he realizes it's the same way Satan works. Right? We have those obvious ones. Oh, we've got to give those up. But then some of the more subtle ones, right? over time in our lives, we realize, oh, wait a minute. I've been deceived all along. This is part of uh, growing in Christ. We come to a greater realization of, of the ways of Satan and the ways of our Lord Jesus. Here, <clears throat> no longer imitating the present evil environment, meaning the world. <clears throat> Perhaps you have to ask that question, so we will entertain it. What's so bad about the world? Well, Scripture is very clear. James 4.4, 4, you adulteresses. Do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Listen, there's, there's no way that you can have uh, the world on one, in one hand and Jesus in the other. It's not, it's not possible. It's not possible. There will be a constant tug. Perhaps we can describe it as a gravitational pull from the world. It's as if uh, you're walking into a music hall where everyone, hundreds of people are singing on a flat or a sharp. And, and then you walk in there and you have to sing on key. 
And you realize the inevitable result is that if everyone else is singing flat or sharp and you're trying to sing on key, it's going to be very difficult. All you need to think is about at church, if one person is singing flatted or sharp next to you, that's already difficult. But hundreds of people, there's that gravitational pull. We think about Lot's wife, fleeing Sodom. God's judgment, he already told them, hey, this judgment will come. God was merciful. You think about the, the dialogue between Abraham and God and, and the decreasing numbers. Okay, well, sorry, God, what about for this number? What about this, for this number? And then he goes down to 10. He wouldn't destroy for 10. So he's saying there weren't 10 righteous people. Lot and his family flee. His, his wife turns because there's, there's a desire, there's a longing for what she had once, be, which, which, which she was leaving behind. The status, the privilege, the acceptance turns into this pillar of salt. Here, oftentimes the decisions that we make, we ought not to be afraid to ask the question of why. The why question is a theological question. We ought to ask why, particularly with those decisions that you and I make out of fear. We're fearful of man. What will the world think of me? I'm going to be made an example of. They're going to come after me. They're going to make my life difficult. They're going to cancel me. Oh, well, this is the way that Satan wants you to think. Hey, don't stick out. Just fit in. This is why there's a temptation for you to be like the world. Here, it's a reminder that the fear of man is worldly. That, that is to be like the world. When we fear men, that is to be like the world. And, and scripture warns that the fear of man is a snare. Rather, the fear of God is spiritual. The fear of God is refreshing. The fear of God is holy. And this is the whole meaning of leaving the world behind, of, of God calling us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. You realize, you know where you, you, know where you need to be when everyone is mocking you. Everyone is despising you, reviling you as the one who sticks out. Because that's what the world does. So this is the first point, the command to a clean break from your past life. The second point, the reasons for a clean break from your past life. Second half of verse 17 through verse 19. <clears throat> in the futility of their minds, they're darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. So we have in verses 17 and 18, the description of the corrupt mind begins by saying the futility of their minds. Other versions say vanity, but here uh, you have the definition of vanities is one is it matches futility like an emptiness, a pointlessness, but then the other part of vanity is out of pride. So, of course, it's done out of pride, but the, the focus is the, the futility, meaning that the efforts, the efforts that men makes in, in their uh, endeavors, in their pursuits, the endeavors for meaning, for purpose, for, for happiness, they, they result in failure. They result in disappointment. That is the futility of the mind. You think about some of these 
great buildings, some of the technological, medical advancements. I'm not saying that those are bad things. Those are all great things. We ought to be thankful for those. But what we're saying is, if we begin with the rejection of God, we read earlier in Psalm 53, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. So they begin by saying, there is no God. And then you try to have meaning and purpose and happiness by beginning with the rejection of God. The answer is, it will only be met with grief and failure. Here, you ask yourself, what is the contrast for you as a Christian? The contrast is immediate. The contrast is clear. Isaiah 26.3, you keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. What are some of those simple things that you have as a Christian? For people looking for purpose, looking for satisfaction, looking for happiness, the Lord has given you that. He keeps you in perfect peace when your thoughts are centered on him, when you take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. The futility of, of mind, we also have the darkened understanding. In verse 18, they're darkened in their understanding. Here, <clears throat> we ought to understand that total depravity is not that people are as bad as they can possibly be. That's not what total depravity refers to. Total depravity addresses two matters. One is sin affects every one of man's faculties. It affects our mind, affects our heart, affects our will, affects our emotions. The other part of total depravity says that man, in his sin, uh, is unable to respond even to the gospel. Uh, man in his sin is unable to meet the righteous requirements of the law. That we can't even respond. We can't even hear. We don't have the ability to respond positively to the gospel. That's total depravity. Regarding this darkened understanding, this is referred to as the noetic effects of sin. Every one of our faculties is affected. We see that in Romans 1. The effect on our mind. So, we understand that the heart, often we, we think as Americans, the heart is the seat of feelings, but uh, other cultures see the heart as the seat of thoughts. Uh, others claim that it's the mind. The bottom line is that in Romans 1, it speaks about how sinful men suppress the truth of God in unrighteousness. They, they know certain things about God. They know his righteous requirements, and they refuse to follow it. They refuse to give him glory, and they refuse obedience to him. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. Well, children, what does this mean? It means that if you meet someone who calls himself an atheist, it means they are self-proclaimed fools. That's not my definition. This is from Psalm 53, verse 1. That's God's definition. They're self-proclaimed fools. Here, think about this darkened understanding. We'll give a simple example from Acts 19. You have two types of people. You have the people who were confessing their sins. And these were the ones who were saying, you know what? I'm deeply involved in the life of the occult. Uh, I communicate with demons and, and whatnot. And I'm going to leave all that behind. They collected those books, the spell books, 
that were worth 50,000 pieces of silver. And keep in mind that the, the wage for a working man back then was one piece of silver per day's work, 50,000 pieces of silver. Is, is, that, is that an amount that someone could make in their lifetime? I don't think so. You do the math. Uh, one person in a lifetime can't make 50,000 pieces of silver. And, and yet they didn't say, we're going to sell it on eBay, right? There's a lot of money. We could sell that and give it to the church, or we can sell that and give it to the poor. They didn't think that way. They said, no, this can't be sold. It must be destroyed. It has to be burned. They burned it. They looked at their lives and said, not only we cannot continue in that, they said, no one else should. Those spell books ought to be burned. And then you have the contrast. The contrast was, was in this man, Demetrius, who was a silversmith. And he said, no, wait a minute. Here, this man, Paul, is preaching against the worship of idols. And our very business is tied with idolatry, of, of, with Artemis. So apparently he was making some kind of silver statue. I, I'm going to use some, some uh, poetic interpretation that they were probably some type of risque uh, type of statue of Artemis. And he had to fight it. Great as Artemis of the Ephesians, he had to fight them. This, this man was not able to think, you know what? To give up, to give up this life, to follow Christ means I must have a, a new purpose. He couldn't even think about, you know what? I'm going to start making silver challenge coins, right? Or, hey, I'm going to make this Fabergé egg. I'm only going to make a few of them so that they'll, they'll be worth a lot. I'll sell them each for progressively more. You, you, you go down that path, hey, I, I can make Charlie Brown statues out of silver. I don't have to make idols. Or I could... Learn a new trade. You, you think about all the possibilities, but the darkened understanding, because my profit is gone, my livelihood is gone, I'm going to starve, then I have to start fighting all the way from the beginning. Perhaps at times you also reason in the same false way. If this is true, that means I need to give up this, this, and this, and I'm not willing to give that up. So my reasoning is I will fight it every step of the way. This is a darkened understanding. We have also mentioned in verse 18, <clears throat> the ignorance that is in them. Unregenerate men, men who have not been given new life in Jesus Christ, are ignorant of the very things that please God. This is not a childlike ignorance of God's ways, uh, a, a kind of like a naivete, but rather this is a willful, this is a defiant, this is an intentional ignorance. This is an intentional ignorance. Romans 8, 7, and 8. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. There's not a neutrality, in other words. <clears throat> There's not a neutrality. Those who are outside of Christ are not neutral to God. There's, no, there's nothing of that sort. They're all against them. And we read earlier in Psalm 53, God looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all fallen away. It's not as if this condition addresses the very worst of people, the very worst of Adam's descendants. No, it addresses all of Adam's descendants. No one is accepted except Jesus Christ, who was not conceived by a sinful man and a sinful woman. Here, 
when we think about this ignorance. Summarize it and imagine someone who is uh, trying to get some answers. You know how these people, they, they walk around with this microphone and say, hey, I got some questions for you know, the general public. Right? So this guy walks around and says, hey, what are, the most pressing, what are the two most pressing issues facing our society today? So, Sir, what's your answer? I don't know and I don't care. So, oh, thank you for your two answers. Right? Hey, I don't know and I don't care. Well, isn't, this, isn't this a heart of ignorance? They don't know and they have no desire to know the things of God. Yet for you as a Christian, for you as a Christian, there's much greater hope. We have that in 1 Corinthians 2.12. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. Meaning that because you've been given the Holy Spirit, the things that you once hated, you now love. And the things that are pleasing to God, we see the value of it. We come to love it. And this is a good thing for your life and for mine. We continue with the exclusion from the life of God. Alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. The description earlier, Ephesians 2.12. Separated from Christ. Excluded from commonwealth of Israel. Strangers to the covenant of promise. Without hope and without God in the world. As if the, that were not painful enough to hear. Exclusion from the life of God. A typical answer for this is that you invite a neighbor. You invite a neighbor to join you for church or to join you for a Bible study. And their answer is, I would never darken the door of a church. Imagine what this actually is. is being cut off from the ministry of God's word and sacraments. Cut off from fellowship with God and his people. Cut off from mutual prayer and encouragement. You think about the simple matters of life. That when you are discouraged, you realize that there's people you can turn to. People you can talk to. Hey, uh, mom, dad, or hey, friend, uh, fellow church member. Hey, my elder or my pastor. Hey, I, I'm discouraged for for these reasons. Oh, well, let's point you to some hope that you have in God's word. Let's pray for we'll, we'll pray for you. We'll pray for you now. These simple things that we take for granted. Here, we think also about being excluded from the life of God. What about the tragedy of having no relief from the torments of guilt? No relief from the torments of guilt. 2 Corinthians 7.10 For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret leading to salvation but the sorrow of the world produces death. You realize Satan doesn't have a grip on us in that way. He's the one who constantly comes Hey, do you remember you committed this sin 10 years ago? I saw you do it. And you committed that same sin 13 years ago and 15 years ago. We have a very simple answer to that. I already repented of those sins. I've been forgiven in Christ. It's been paid in full. So leave me alone. You think about the torments of guilt. All you have to do is look at any of these series shows that are on TV, the, the ones that they make multiple series of them. There's always a character 
that's dealing with the guilt of sin. They won't call it that. They won't call it S-I-N, sin. But there's a guilt of something that went wrong in the past. It's a common theme. It's a common theme in the fallen world. Here, Christ commands repentance from sins, that we would forsake our sins, and that we would believe in his offer of salvation to all who repent and follow him, that we would have the forgiveness of sins and eternal life. And you realize the world cannot offer you such a message. This is the gospel, and that Jesus alone is the one who frees us from that guilt. In Christ and by the power of the Holy Spirit, you can actually have the assurance of salvation, that your life is new, that you've been washed clean by the blood of the Lamb. That is the relief from the torments of guilt. Think also, exclusion from the life of God, that there is no mercy and no comfort in times of fear, times of loneliness, times of grief, times of affliction. You realize that for the non-Christian, there's no place they can take those things but to the bottom, but to mind-altering drugs, but, but to their therapist who is going to be paid big quantities of money to tell them how good they are. You know, it's very interesting how all that works. The therapist, he or she is not incented to fix your problem because they're incented to create dependence so that they have a steady stream of business, of income. Maybe, maybe today people don't pay for that themselves anymore because the state pays for it. Think about ministers. Why, why don't ministers have that job? Because ministers are incented to fix your problem. Because we don't need having two people or 50 people or, or 150 people that we constantly have to see. Because, hey, we're not, getting, we're not getting paid for the dollar, for the hour amount. You think about how, do we want to fix these problems? Of course we do. Right? We desire that these problems will be fixed. Here do you think about this mercy and comfort. 2 Corinthians 1, verses 3 through 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. Did you count how many times he mentions the word comfort? The God of all comfort, the comfort that comes with Christ, Comforts and affliction. Don't take for granted that as a Christian, you have true comfort that comes from the Father because He is the Father of all mercy. He's merciful. He sees us in our affliction. He sees us in, in the grips of, of fear and loneliness and grief. And He has mercy upon you as a sinner. We also have the hardness of heart mentioned in verse 18. The ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. Have you ever had someone say to you, listen, don't ever bring up that topic with me again? Is, is that not, uh, I mean, if the topic was something evil, then, then we can understand that. The topic is, uh, do, do, you, do you want to hear about the good news of the gospel? 
And if the response is, don't ever bring that up with me again, this is, this is none other than the hardness of heart. A, someone who is completely closed to the things of God. They're not only not interested, but they're despising it. And as sinful man wanders farther and farther from the ways of God, there's a greater hardening. We have the callous life of sensuality and purity in verse 19. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Here, it's no surprise that a darkened mind leads down the path to sensuality and impurity. This is the way it's reasoned out. It begins with their thinking. Since there is no God, and the fool says in his heart there is no God, then what he has commanded must be wrong, and what he has forbidden must be good. You see how these things go together. Since there is no God, everything mentioned in his book is false. You want to see the examples of this. You look at the secular philosophers. I don't know them all by name, but you look at their lives. Philosophy, the love of wisdom, philosophia, right, the love of wisdom. And they're saying, no, we can have meaning, we can have purpose, we can have satisfaction without God. And this is our, this is our pursuit, this is our very role, this is what we do, this is what philosophers do. But it ends in failure, it ends in grief. You look at how many of these secular philosophers are involved in all, kind, all manners of sin. They follow their lusts. Horrible examples. You, you should not send your children to study under them. Think about this callous life. God gives men consciences. It's a good thing. You look at Romans 2, 15. That God has given men consciences that it would restrain us from our sins. It's, it's the, the word of God that's written in our hearts. But in sin... Man's conscience is hardened. It's seared. First Timothy 4.2, that he speaks about those whose consciences are as if they're seared by a hot iron. That you can touch there. You don't feel anything anymore. Titus 1, verses 15 and 16. To the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Consciences being defiled. And here we have greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Greed, we normally use greed to refer to uh, the desire for wealth, desire for material goods, but here he uses greed just simply as the insatiable appetite for more impurity. Look at the progression. You see in our country, I wasn't born yet, but you, you look at uh, San Francisco, right? The 60s, the free love generation, Haight-Ashbury, uh, Woodstock. There was free love going on, fornication. But it didn't end there. You see, these people then ended up conceiving, and that's, that's when the whole movement for abortion happened. And these people uh, ended up having children, and it didn't end there with fornication or adultery, it, it resulted in homosexuality. This is what we see in, in Romans 1. I'm not making it up. And you, you ask, well, why is it in our country that it's almost as if they're following a script 
They're following a script, and it's the script of God's word. God said this is what happens when men go further and further down the path of impurity. And then you have the transgender movement that came after that. And, and you think about what's next. Well, all you have to do is look at the script. You look at what God has forbidden in the Old Testament. Those are the next phases that will come. Right? We think about, they've even tried to push for it. Minor attracted persons is another way to, to call a pedof pedophile. And, oh, they, they try to push for it. Oh, it's not socially acceptable yet. We'll, we'll just wait another few years and push it again. Right? Here, you think about, there, there's no limits. There's no limits. And you ask, well, well, when should the pushing, when should the, the call for repentance have started? Well, it should have started all the way back there with, uh, with fornication, with premarital sex, that God has given us a standard to follow. And it doesn't specifically eliminate any one of them. It, it, it points us in the right direction from all of them. Here, Romans 1, it speaks about how God gave them over. That he allows men to do these things as part of their judgment. That oftentimes the worst judgment God can give is he allows them to have what they want. This is not saying that their situation is com completely hopeless in terms of what God can do. You look at 1 Corinthians 6, that wonderful message that the Apostle Paul lists all these sins uh, probably some of the similar sins that were going on in Ephesus were going on in Corinth, of even worse nature. 1 Corinthians 6, 11, but he says, such were some of you. Meaning the Lord saves, actually saves people out of those sins. There is true hope in Jesus Christ. There is, there is hope for forgiveness. Hey, can anyone out-sin the grace of God? We should never try to, but the idea of, hey, would we share the gospel with these people? Of course we would. Of course we would. Here we think about these three verses in Ephesians. It's a reminder to you that it's not because you were more intelligent or more upright that you are different. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus. All praise belongs to God. But for the grace of God, there go I. Meaning, would we be any different? The answer is no. We would be exactly the same. This is what the Lord saves us from. Here, it's a reminder to you and to me. If you've left that lifestyle behind, if you've left those ways behind, that you and I must have compassion upon those who are still in darkness. There's hope in Jesus Christ that our Lord offers freely to us the forgiveness of sins and eternal life. Do you find yourself on this runaway train to hell and destruction. There is hope for you now. Embrace the promises of Jesus Christ. That he is one who saves by a great deliverance. It doesn't matter who's working against you. All that matters is the one who's working for you. And he is a great conqueror. His name is Jesus. Here, you must also realize to stand for truth, to stand for righteousness, requires great courage. There is much boldness, much faith needed to be the one. That you become the point person. Everyone fires their arrows at you. But oftentimes, it's that one person. You see how God can change 
situations because of the faith of one. That oftentimes people are fearful. I was fearful to speak up, but this one guy spoke up. And that guy who spoke up, yes, he, he was the lightning rod. All, all, the, all the anger and animosity went to him. But you realize God uses such people. He rewards such boldness. He calls us to be bold in that way. That you and I, we ought not to covet the ways or the mindset, the standards of the world or the wicked. That we ought not to envy them. Now that's the whole point of was Psalm 73. Right, the psalmist goes into detail, envying the wicked. He sees how they don't have all these troubles, but the answer is they do. We ought not to covet their practices. Here, the warnings of darkness and of, of greed and impurity. Are you contemplating a return to your previous life, the life that you had before Christ? Well, may this passage be a wake-up call to you that it will be dangerous for your soul if you return to Egypt. Do not do that. The life that you have now in Christ, whatever afflictions you have, whatever difficulties you face, living that life with Jesus is far better than to live your life without him. However, the world will receive you. You must guard against <clears throat> the satanic lies and misrepresentation about God's ways. Satan will always step in there and misrepresent God. Hey, what do you think about this God, huh? He, he doesn't allow you to have any fun, no pleasure in life. No, that's not true. Those are misrepresentations. God allows us to have great pleasure in him. He allows us to have pleasure in the things of life. He just puts barriers. He puts fences. He puts boundaries around them and says they ought to be enjoyed within these boundaries. But sin is a rejection of rules and restraints. If you find yourself despising the fences that he's given you, this is, this is where sin begins, is despising them, realizing that we need them. They're for our safety. They're for his glory. So quickly also, do you and I forget the blessings and privileges of being children of God? That we ought not to take God's guidance, his provision, his protection, and his Holy Spirit for granted. That God has given us of his Holy Spirit. That he's reminded us that there is no returning to Egypt. That instead... We must give up the walk of our former life. We must follow Jesus Christ and trust that his ways are perfect, that he's called us to a far better life, and that we should rejoice in it. May we go to our God together in prayer.